George. What are we doing here? What are we doing here? It's Red Fence! It's Red Fence. Do your homework! Hi, Acton. Hi, George. It's good to see you. It's good to see you. Yeah. I'm gonna be mellow, because we're doing this at night, and usually we don't record at night. That's true. <laughs> it seems a little bit crazy to be talking about daycare, given all the crazy other stuff that's going on around <laughs> in the world today. <laughs> But this is the homework we assigned. <laughs> so we're here to talk about it. <laughs> so I guess our first things first has to be thoughts on daycare. I never actually went to daycare because my mom stayed home with me and my brothers until we were in high school and middle school. And while I have a lot of happy memories from my elementary school years, you know, my memory doesn't really stretch back before five but I will say, you know, one of my best friends is a marriage and family therapist, and she's known me for over 25 years. And she once made this comment to me. She said, you're the most well-attached person I know, which is interesting in light of one of the books we're going to look at, Being There, which is all about infant maternal attachment. And so I've always taken my friend's observation about me as a compliment to my mother and not about me. My mother did a beautiful job of cultivating attachment with me when I was a baby and when I was a child. And I definitely see how that gift of attachment keeps giving, you know, in my ability to mother my own kids and in the love and security of my marriage, the gift of good attachment has made my family relationships feel relatively easy and really natural and things work fairly well without me having to try very hard. And that's definitely not about me. I think it's a testament to my mom and my dad. But regarding daycare, my mom actually did some part-time daycare, childcare work out of her house when I was mm. in elementary and middle school. I did not know that. Yeah. Yeah. I, I had, it's one of those things I kind of forgotten about it until you asked. And I was like, wait a minute. Oh yeah. My mom did that. So you were so, in a daycare. It was in just a sense, your own. It was my own house. Yeah. So she watched a number of different kids over the years, mostly between the ages of two and six. So no babies, but um, mm-hmm. toddlers. One was the son of a single mother that my mom was friends with from church. There was uh, the daughter of a divorced mother who had to work and that we knew from our neighborhood. And there was also like a late oops baby daughter of a friend, uh, a friend of my mom's who had older kids that were my age. And you know, I have, I have memories of my mom doing uh, in-home child care that they, it was sweet. It felt normal. It felt happy. And... My mother's a very calm, easygoing person. She's very funny and gentle. And so it just it just felt very natural to have other kids around. It didn't mm. feel weird at all. I don't know how much she charged for her services. I'm guessing not very much. She probably, she was the kind of person who would just do that to be nice, you know? But I'm sure they gave her something, but probably whatever they could manage to pay, mm-hmm. not much. But I would help out sometimes. I'd play with the kids. I'd amuse the kids. And I have this particular memory of one of the little boys, like, peeing all over our back steps. <laughs> it was more fun than peeing in the toilet. But so there was definitely, like, some potty training help going on. Oh, fun. <laughs> but, yeah, there were good times. Yeah. My mother lied that I was potty trained to get me into the first daycare <laughs> I went to. Yeah. She's like, oh, yeah, of course. Of course. I must have been, like, three and a half. Had and she done any? Like, a bit? I don't know. <laughs> they, my her sister was there, they happened to be visiting, okay. and so they like crash course potty trained me, and like of course when it to... didn't stick, at the daycare they just attributed it to being like nervous <laughs> for the new setting. She's got a good cover story. She's got a great cover story. <laughs> yeah. So, but you have no memories of daycare. I have so. no memories of that first daycare. I have memories of, so that would probably have been like a year, or maybe not even a year before I went to Kinnerin because I was. My mother was not having this late baby red shirt thing. That was um, not a thing. 
So I entered kindergarten when I was still four, when I would turn five that November. Okay. My mother was like, not, they not told her back. like, you're not old enough. And she said, you're taking her. It's <laughs> like, it was not a, it was not an option. <laughs> and so the kindergarten was not all day. So right. I would be at daycare um, in the morning. It was like the daycare would take you to the kindergarten and then pick you up. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay. So you had like a That's school right, day half, surrounded by daycare. Half day kindergarten. Right. <clears throat> right. Okay. So, because if you wanted to like get to work early and work full time, you really needed, the school day wasn't long enough to do that. So I remember that daycare where, and, and it's funny because there's, there's a version of my name, like a, obviously we, we go by our pseudonyms, but only there's a very few people who are allowed to use one particular version of my name. And one of them happens to be the owner of that daycare. Really? Of the, of the daycare that I went to that, you know, the one I remember. <laughs> yeah. Do you stay in touch with the person who's allowed to call I you? went back a couple times as an older person. Like, oh. it's so crazy because, you know, it's like they had the doorknob on the top of the door to get into the oh. yard. Yeah. And as a kid, you're like unreachable. And then you go as an older person, you realize that it's like you just risk, you're just raising your hand up and it's not high at all. <laughs> it's not like taller It's not like you. taller than, than the sky. <laughs> it's just like, oh yeah, that's normal. Yeah. That's like, wow. you know. Yeah. I mean, I guess, you know, it's all about what you know. So that was just yeah. normal for me. Yeah. But the story I want to tell, yes. which is hilarious, is I was sitting in the bath. This is, my mother told this to me. I do not remember this. And I said, Mom, do you know the vagina song? <laughs> <laughs> and my mother just is horrified because apparently she said, and I don't know how the timing of this works, because she said, like, some of these stories about daycare abuse have been in the news already. <gasps> And so she was like, oh, my God, my oh, child's no. being abused at daycare. Oh, but she no. decides to, like, keep her cool and okay. be like, no, I don't remember that. And, and I'm like, you know the vagina song. <laughs> and she's, like, just trying to keep it together. And she's like, why don't you sing it? I don't remember. And I go, someone's in the kitchen vagina. <laughs> of course, you know that song. Yes. But I'm not sure our listeners. But it's someone's in the kitchen with Dinah. Dinah. Someone's in the kitchen. And so my mother is just, like, rolling on the floor <laughs> laughing. And she's I like, it's it. with Dinah. <laughs> with Dinah. <laughs> I guess I'm And I'm like, and uh, me, little knew. me is like, what's so funny? Right. <laughs> <laughs> but that you would even know the word vagina. I know, but I, maybe I didn't know the word vagina. Maybe I just heard the sounds and it, it, it sounded, sounded like. like... <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> but you can see how, isn't that interesting? Like that moment mm-hmm. of panic, how all these, you know. Just it highlights the degree to which children can, children and parents can misunderstand each other. Yes, because language is a they're learning language. Language is right. You know, crazy fragile. You know, if something like your little story had happened in one of this preschool case we're talking about, you know, with a different mother that could have been enough. Straight, she'd been like, my daughter is being abused because she sang the vagina song. Right, right. Holy crap! Yes. Yeah. Wow. That could go on. That could have gone either way. That is a perfect intro story. Isn't that crazy? <laughs> it's really that's, funny. That's, too. that's a true story, but it's very. <laughs> it's a strange true story. Yeah. This week, as a sign, we are reading "We Believe the Children: A Moral Panic in the 1980s" by Richard Beck. It was, I think, a journalist, basically, mm-hmm. who wrote this book. Mm-hmm. And being there, why prioritizing motherhood in the first three years matters by Erica Commissar, who is, I think, a psychologist. Yeah, psychotherapist. Psychotherapist. Mm -hmm. And one of the primary threads running through both books is daycare. 
how parents feel about it, how children experience it, and how our perspective on daycare reveals some of our deepest values and our deepest fears about the nature of the family. My takeaway in my elevator pitch was, who we are is what we panic about. (laughs) (laughs) That's good. (laughs) Uh, My elevator pitch is, without strong bonds of trust, we become miserable and we lose our grip on reality. Okay, so we're going to start with a quote from the very end of We Believe the Children. Mm-hmm. And we're calling this section, The Elimination of Sexual Hierarchy? What does that mean? <laughs> of course, the hysteria, and he's talking about all the different kinds of hysteria. The hysteria about child abuse, right? Yeah. Whether it's daycare or in your own home, repressed memories. Yeah, stranger danger. Stranger danger. The hysteria played on people's fears about the social changes that began to work their way through American society at the end of the 20th century. The reorganization of private life and the slow, but probably, hopefully, inexorable breakdown of the country's sexual hierarchy. But the middle-class nuclear family will not be restored to its former place, nor do most people want it to be. To imagine otherwise can only perpetuate this series of costly and destructive fantasies. So we were like, I mean, his liberal bona fides were already on the table before. Yeah. But, but that was like, what? Yeah, most people, what people? <laughs> yeah. I try to rack my brains to think if that really is like the mainstream liberal attitude about this. I don't, I don't know anymore. I'm too confused. But anyway, like I said, the book explores, it's a lengthy and detailed history of several related phenomena during that period. So we've got the child daycare sexual abuse scandals, a discussion of multiple personality disorder, Mm -hmm. and recovered memories related to childhood sexual abuse. Mm -hmm. What all these trends have in common is that they are, at least in Beck's opinion, which I basically share, fabricated, or at a minimum, much, much rarer than they were purported to be. They're all, they all share their origin in social contagion. Yes. And what happens there is once the spark is lit, it just these things just rage out of control. Even if we acknowledge, as I believe we must, that you know child sexual abuse exists, the allegations, accusations, arrests, and the trials that took place during this period, exemplified by the most famous one of all, the McMartin preschool case in Southern California, most of these cases could not be substantiated by actual evidence. And there was... There's some poignant examples of that that we'll discuss later. Yeah. In particular, the way the kids were coaxed. I mean, you could call it coaching, but it's it's coercion, really. Yeah. Into confirming abuse allegations is so plainly unscientific that it becomes clear that there was a social force so powerful that it could override common sense at scale. So the question is, what is this social force? Hmm. So Beck who, as we said, wears his progressive bona fides on his sleeve, clearly believes that this social force is a kind of rejection of, you know, what he hopes is the inevitable progress towards a better society. Because, and it's better because it dismantles what is viewed as a primary source of oppression for both men and women, I might add, the nuclear family. And that's where I was like, what? <laughs> yeah, no. You can go, what, first. <laughs> So, so Beck is saying that the hysteria over child sex abuse and daycares played on fear over the breakdown of the nuclear family, or he calls it sexual hierarchy, which I think is a pretty lazy pejorative, in my opinion. Like, family and sexual hierarchy are not synonymous, and he never proves that they are. He just sort of assumes it's obvious. 
gives the family a little slap in the face and then proceeds <laughs> on his way. But anyway, he's saying that this moral panic was a sublimated or misdirected way that parents in society communicated, the kids are not all right. And while we agree with Beck that the reasons the kids are not all right isn't because of mass satanic ritual abuse by daycare workers. You know, we do believe that the parents weren't inventing the distress. The distress of the parents. The, the parents' distress was real. Yes. The children were not distressed, distressed until the grown-ups started messing with them, trying to extract confessions of things that never happened. <laughs> but the grown-ups actually were legitimately like anxious and on edge. And that discomfort, that anxiety, the worry, the guilt over children's well-being... I think was a meaningful signal from reality, but it got transmuted into something sensational and fictitious through this process of scapegoating. In the vast majority of cases, daycare workers were not molesting children and certainly not in murderous satanic rituals, but that feeling, I don't think I should be dropping my kid off here, was still a legitimate parental experience. I think that's intuition. It's the gift of fear, um, as the author Gavin DeBecker calls it. He has a book by that name. Have you read that before? I've heard of it. It's so good. Maybe we should do that Maybe sometime. we should. <clears throat> it's really great. That gift of fear is worth listening to, even if it's possible to misinterpret it. So blaming daycare and freaking out about possible pedophiles it became an idiom of distress, just like multiple personality disorder did and you know false recovered memories did. These are ways of communicating pain, fear, guilt, stuckness, anger, anxiety, a cry for help. And these idioms are catchable by other people. But the moral panic and social contagion don't invalidate the existence of the original distress. It just gets changed somehow. What Beck calls the hopefully inexorable breakdown of the nuclear family created and still creates immense distress in many people, both in parents and in children. And I can't wrap my head around why Beck feels the need to play the violin while the post-sexual revolution family is on fire and burning down. It, that, that paragraph of his, it felt like it came out of nowhere to me. Why is this good? You know, who says that marriage is an evil hierarchy that's doomed for destruction? You know, and I feel like there's a bit of a misogynistic shushing of maternal concern that Beck is doing there. And, and it matters that he uses the word hysteria a lot, which has kind of a checkered history. You know, he's saying... Listen, ladies, you had your moment of freaking out over the supposed dangers of daycare back in the 80s, and now we all know that was bogus and ridiculously overblown, so whatever misgivings or concerns you may have about leaving your babies with strangers, just don't worry your pretty little head about it. Drop the kids off, get back to work, don't let yourself get dragged back into childcare and sexual hierarchy, which are really the same thing, over these false fears. I so. mean, it's... I agree, and I think that as far mm -hmm. as the general level of sexual deviance goes, Beck is actually right. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you look at the statistics, we can trust strangers not to sexually abuse children. Right. But this isn't about that, right? It's, right. Cause, and, and we'll never know. We weren't there. But I totally don't think anything untoward was going on at the McMartin preschool. Right. The things that resulted from the false accusations created this whole set of other circumstances. It being not true and it, people being comfortable with it being not true are not the equal. Like, right. they don't add up, right? <laughs> That's right. And also the nuclear family, why is he on about that? I mean, that's like the exception, right? Yeah. That's the, the nuclear family itself was a breakdown of something else that had gone before right. it. Right. It's, yeah. he's talking it's about overthrowing something that is just sort of the provable exception. Right. I mean, certainly the nuclear family, even as worse, like I think of, you know, the stories of late 19th or early 20th century drunkards who beat their wives and, you know, their wives can't earn a living wage because of sexism and they can't control how many children they have. And 
You know, yeah. even that is still not synonymous with patriarchy. Because that's just, like, bad bad men mm-hmm. and the expectations that men have towards women. Those are not equivalent. That's right. We know our illich. Yep. And <laughs> we know the precarity that it results from selling labor for money. And we know that that situation is two minutes old. Right. So I think what Beck means when he says the nuclear family is really a kind of catch-all feminist expression for... Mothers taking care of children in lieu of being present in the market. Yes. And daycare is a solution to that mm-hmm. for some mothers. Mm-hmm. He views that as sort of the moment that it, a mother absents herself from the market, something fundamental has changed and it oppresses her. Which is weird considering, especially because at this, the school at the center of the McMartin scandal was a preschool. So this was not a panic over worrying that kids were too young to be in group care. Mm-hmm. I mean, these children would have gone from three or four years at home right. to one, probably one or so years, depending on their age, right, of preschool before kindergarten, which is exactly what I did. Yeah. So it's not framed as a debate about are the kids too young to be in care. Yeah. It's completely framed as there's a huge number of you know, satanic individuals abusing kids on a massive scale which is was not true was not demonstrated to be true and also as a political story has you know has reasserted itself in the whole pizzagate oh yeah yeah right and QAnon I mean, and all that yeah that's a political that has been yeah. reimagined as a political story so it's yeah. a story about it's it's a story that's not about children or mothers it's about some sort of social virtue mm. that makes us suspicious of people we don't know very well uh. It's a panic about the sexual deviance of strangers, mm-hmm. not about whether infant to toddler daycare is good or bad or indifferent. Right. And that's interesting because it highlights, as you say, a gut level intuition among humans that they should not trust non-kin to take care of their children. Right. I think this is evolutionarily hardwired into us to a yeah. large degree. And I think the moral panic is what happens when people try to over- override those evolved instincts. Yeah. The problem is, often feminism doesn't let you talk about these choices in this way. Mm-hmm. It can't be necessary for women to care for their own young children if that necessity makes them unfree to do what they want. It's unseemly <laughs> to acknowledge that women are constrained in a way that men aren't. Uh... This is the feminist struggle, to unconstrain women from the asymmetric necessity that they are, were, are, under. Mm-hmm. But as you point out, we've largely done this. The sexual yeah. revolution is complete. But it's arguably, I think you and I think this, it's the wrong revolution. Mm -hmm. Instead of disincentivizing women from becoming mothers, it's servitude or self-actualization. Choose. We could have figured out, and I think this is what defending gender is about, how to make motherhood more feasible and and more attractive to modern women. And this is where Beck loses both of us. We do believe that the nuclear family is one way, even if it isn't the only way, to allow mothers to flourish. The idea that it helps women who can already opt out of it, to destroy it, is basically bullshit feminism. Yeah, that's BS. I agree. All right, next section. Sexual panic is anti-feminist. Really? So, another quote from Beck. Here, then, are cases in which the fear that violent pedophiles might abduct children from public places, a vanishingly rare occurrence, was used to justify the punishment of women who were looking for work women who were at work, or women who simply thought that she and her child might both benefit from the child being allowed some time to play on his own. In other words, women whose failure to devote every moment to their role as mothers was viewed as literally criminal. 
there was a direct link between child abuse hysteria and anti-feminism, and the fact that such punitive measures, when criticized, are invariably described as well-intentioned, only makes them more effective and harder to roll back. This is an interesting section, because these laws, there is a rock-and-a-hard-place situation if you don't have someone else to take, take care of your child and you need to go to work or go to an interview or be somewhere. But I think he's looking at it the wrong way around. Beck here, mm-hmm. he's right that we have a society where children are now viewed as unsafe when not under, you know, adult supervision. There, But there's now an entire parenting movement, Live and Let Grow, mm-hmm. that has been kindled in reaction to these overreactions that Beck describes against letting in children be out in society without a designated adult supervision. So I'm in agreement with Beck that these new norms that say children aren't safe in the world have much greater costs on poor and or single women. Mm-hmm. But even if he's correct that stranger danger has been exaggerated, the issue about childhood independence doesn't hinge on mortal danger. It hinges rather on the fact that we live radically more estranged lives yes. from one another, adults and children, than we used to. I think we both read an excerpt from an unpublished book called... Oh, what's the title of the book? I don't remember. The Last the last Ones, or The Ones Who Remember, I think, maybe. Mm-hmm. Anyway, it's an expert from an unpublished book that Rod Dreher circulated on his substack, and he it's because he knows the author, Brian Collar, and Collar is interviewing old people in Ireland about their childhood and how different modern life is now. And I'm going to read a quote from that. It's beautiful. One great unmentioned casualty of the modern breakdown of trust is the close friendships that children often had with local adults. To become their own person, children need multiple role models beyond their parents, and children have them by the dozens. Carville described his friendship with a woman across the road who shared her vegetables. Bill Bergen remembered spending hours watching his village blacksmith work, and Patrick Boland remembered he and his friends, perhaps nine or ten, scaling the fence around the nearby nurse's school and chatting with the young ladies who indulged their childlike questions. You can see this in most novels or diaries written before the last few generations. In his diary in the early 1800s, William Howitt wrote fondly of how much of his childhood was spent being mentored by kindly adults all around. We haunted the joiner's shop, chipping and boring and endangering our toes and fingers. At another, the smith's forge was our attraction. Many a day of a cold winter did I pass by the pleasant blaze of this forge, delighting in its cheerful light and in all the curious operations going on, such as making chains and sharpening plowshares and so on. And many a day of a cold winter, too, did I sit cross-legged on the board of a good-natured tailor making pincushions of a red and yellow strips of cloth. (laughs) So in this context, from that perspective, a stranger meant something very specific, someone who wasn't from that place, and for that reason was not a known quantity. We may live in neighborhoods now where we know know the neighborhood and we recognize people, but we don't make our living from and in a larger sense rely on the people who live near us right the modern world is just no longer set up that way and this setup i'd say is what creates a situation where a mother rich or poor feels she has no other option than to keep her children in her sight at all time right she's not in the position because she's female she's in this position because the model that enabled people to be productive in the context of raising the next generation to be the same has been destroyed yeah and replaced by a model where work is cut off from that possibility and that sucks. Yeah. And not just for children or women. It sucks for men, too. Yeah. You can bet that seeing more of their children is one reason that men often also want to work from home. Mm-hmm. And that's positive. 
It's a move that is entirely limited to a very narrow band of work. Most jobs require the employed person to show up somewhere away from home at a specified time. Yeah. And until that whole model is reconsidered, most children are going to be raised the same way most work is done, in segregated spaces mm-hmm. designed for the purpose of their protection and education. Illich would call this childhood as a service. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's such an interesting point that the social good that we might call free-range kids is dependent on broad social trust, on knowing your neighbors in that particular kind of way fostered by mutual need and mutual help. You know, and when we don't have that social capital, that fabric of trustworthy adults, then the definition of good mother changes into someone who can literally devote every minute of her life to being a mother, which is a helicopter mom. (laughs) And this means that the role of mother in modern America is picking up the slack from what used to be shared because we could trust each other, right? And that's basically what Illich warns against. Yes. That's the, that's the downside. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so the real question is, what happened to isolate and alienate us from each other? Like, what happened that makes knowing and trusting your neighbors through interdependence a rarity rather than the norm? That's what should be blamed for what Beck calls anti-feminism, or this sort of punishment of mothers who can't be on guard 24-7. And I think you're right that this change is connected to the way we work. We no longer have the kind of work that we can safely and usefully apprentice young children into. Like, think for a moment of the oddity of take your daughter to work day. (laughs) Right? Like that that model of work that we have now, like away from home, doing something highly specialized that at most once a year you can bring your child to see you do. But of course she can't actually contribute to your work. Like she'll most likely be a tag along or underfoot. But for most of history, it would have been that your daughter or your son would have been working with you and beside you as soon as they could. Like there's a whole lot about like gardening and care for small animals. Have you ever watched like a two-year-old pick up acorns? Yeah. Yeah, There you go. Just like You're like, pick up acorns, and they're like, okay. And they do it, like, you know. Very usefully, right? There's like, yeah, there's a lot of, like, yard work, gardening, small animal care that's very kid-friendly. I mean, gathering eggs. That's, like, the quintessential, like, preschooler, like, go very carefully and get Mm -hmm, the eggs from the chickens, mm -hmm, right? mm -hmm. Those rhythms of subsistence living involve tasks that kids could do and be genuinely good at and contribute. Like, my grandma grew up on a farm milking cows. My dad helped my grandpa with their orchard. I remember uh, Mary Harrington describing that weaving Mm -hmm. was traditionally, like, women's work in many different societies because women could do it together while chatting and while keeping, like, half an eye out for the little ones. And you can pause. It's not like... There. You can't really pause in the middle of milking a cow. Right. (laughs) But in the middle of weaving something, you can step away. It'll be there right for you when you come back, right? So that women could be productive and contributive economically while mothering at the same time and in the same place with company. You know, so those things are not pitted against each other. But the way we live now puts adults in one silo, you know, called work, and kids in another silo called daycare or school. Mm. And that is weird. It's unnatural. And this industrialized way of life changes the nature of mothering and makes it into something that can't be easily combined with work in one place. And that means that there are now whole new ways for mothers to fail, Mm. you know, or quote unquote fail, Mm -hmm. right? But I think it misses the point to blame pedophile hysteria for this issue of what do we do with the kids? How will they stay safe? When the problem is actually much more profound than that. Like we've chosen to structure our economy in such a way that children become something to be watched over much, much longer than that than used to be the norm. And instead of kids helping us with our tasks, the kids themselves become a task. Yeah. And no, stay a task for a really long time. <laughs> that's very that's very precise. I mean, and, and not only a task, they become an expensive 
Yes. Luxury. Yes. Luxury viewed from the pure sense that they don't contribute to the household well-being or income. Yeah. I mean, to think that a child who does not eat very much could be a, a very energetic source of labor. Yeah. You know? <laughs> I mean, you're getting more out of the child who can milk a cow than that child is consuming in a food. Yeah. I mean, it's a... We've gone from <laughs> there being a net subsist, subsistence benefit to a net debt. <laughs> or whatever. <laughs> yes. Is. Yeah. Uh, because they cost mm. now. Because they don't... That's right. They don't help the household in that way. Yeah. And it's... We've talked about this before, but I'll also add that I was watching a preview of a documentary, a documentary that Jennifer Say is doing about the effect of school closures oh. on children during oh. COVID. Interesting. And because she became an early advocate to open the schools back up, believing that it wasn't justified to keep the schools closed yeah. so long. You were lo- the trade-off wasn't yes. correct. What's interesting is the way they talk about schools, they talk about it as an essential lifeline for children. Because without school, they don't have a way of being together. And it's interesting because we've said this before, that if you turn something into a service and then you take it away, it's it's missing. The society can't put it back on its own. And part of that is obviously, you know, the lockdown or whatever. Yeah. That you weren't really allowed to congregate. But yeah. it's this idea that children don't have a place to learn and grow and be together and be with other adults anymore if it's not school. So my takeaway from watching the preview was like, oh, Illich would love, hate this. It's like, yeah, the school's the only place they can get together, but that's messed up. Yes, yes. <laughs> It's like, yes, it was bad that they closed the schools, but it's a sign that it, that their whole, that all that socialization that used to take place spontaneously in a society right. based on its subsistence patterns right. and is gone. Spaces. Yeah. Which is creepy when you think about it from Illich's point of view. It's creepy. Ooh. It's like, because it's like they're, because, you know, that's sort of like a very, considered a kind of fringe viewpoint to sort of be that adamantly, to to treat the school closure as a social crisis is kind of, it's considered to be, you know, it it borders on that, you know, the government took over our lives for one virus Mm -hmm. and lied about the science or whatever. Like Mm -hmm. it becomes quickly, it it takes you out to the fringe of those, uh, of those opinions. But it's, and it's, so it's really funny from our Illich, Illich perspective to be like, uh, yeah, you may think you're radical, but actually you're, <laughs> yeah. you're like, try this on for size. Right. Try, you shouldn't need a school to right. have children socialize. <laughs> try that. Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> All right. Next section. Avoiding sexual abuse creates sexual abuse. What? This is, this was my, I think my favorite sad Revelation. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> from We Believe the Children. Mm-hmm. This is a quote from Beck, what he's talking about when they finally get to the McMartin preschool trial. Many days were spent on the medical evidence. Astrid Heger and the other doctors who examined the children in 1983 and 1984 had used colposcopes to take photographs of the McMartin students' genitals and anuses, and now these slides were projected onto a scene in the courtroom. Two journalists named Paul and Shirley Everill attended almost every day of the trial, and the hours they spent staring at the colposcopic slides seemed to have marked them in ways that other aspects of the of the case did not. Listening to these, the lawyers discuss the hundreds of slides that were to be presented in the coming months 
They recorded the lawyer sitting next to them as saying, I wonder who are the real pornographers in this thing. That is, that's the quote. This is Beck again. That is a bit of a cheap shot, but it is true that no other photographs of the McMartin children's genitals were ever found. Later, sitting quietly and staring yet again at a, quote, blazing giant anus, a friend sat down next to them and said, I see it's anus awareness week again. This is astounding. I mean, even without the bad science that justified the use of this thing called the coposcope, which is essentially a magnifying glass. Um, this is what Beck describes it as. Essentially a magnifying device that could be hooked up to a film or video camera. And of course, it has its origins in Brazil for virginity checking. Really? Because you, the law was there that you could only be raped if you weren't a virgin. Oh my word. So like... You know, oh, oh confirmed that's all awful. negative, awful yes. history of oh, that. Dear. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so even with this bad science that justified this device that to confirm the presence of abuse, and with this sort of wrong theories about what you could look, what what was the evidence there yeah. on these children's bodies, just the sheer graphic nature of intimate examinations of these yeah. children, and then the you know the production of these larger-than-life photographic evidence of these exams at court. It just... It shows you how overwhelming the sense of evil was. Yeah. Like, to think that if if all the adults involved in this trial thought that these kinds of means were necessary to justify the ends of justice for these kids, like, it just shows you what the yeah. stakes were, right? Yeah. And, of course, we want to remove children from the presence of those who have or will harm them. There's, there's not any disagreement about right. that. But even in the worst circumstances, there are still going to be trade-offs. Yeah. And there is just astonishing stories in this book of the trade-offs. I mean, from general exams to the number of parents of children who were caught up in maybe initially as, you know, possibly being victims because they had a connection to the school, who then themselves ended up being accused of abuse and losing their children to the state. Right. Which, by the way, means you're letting strangers care for your kids. Exactly, exactly. "Ah!" Yeah. Yeah. Oh. So equally astonishing are the parents who, despite the initial denials and obvious coercion of their own children, remain convinced beyond any doubt that your children had been abused. Mm -hmm. So this taps into, this kind of behavior clearly taps into something beyond logic. Beyond the questions of true and false. Mm Mm-hmm. It taps into some primal need to believe that the world is some certain way. Mm-hmm. I don't know why you believe it is full of satanic sexual predators, mm-hmm. but it was. But these parents never lost that conviction. Right. When the case was finally over, they hired a crew to explore the McMartin preschool site because the owner had changed hands and the owner was going to demolish it anyway. So he was like, sure, you want to go look for the magic tunnels? You can go look for the magic tunnels. But yeah. that's what they're doing. They were hiring like an investigative team of construction analysis yeah, people or whatever diggers to dig up exactly the in the hopes of finding evidence at last of these infamous tunnels that supposedly allowed secret transit to sites where these unspeakable acts occurred so true belief like that is unshakable yeah. it doesn't matter that nothing happened at that preschool right something far larger happened to all the parents police media lawyers jurors etc involved in that case yeah so, it's hard to describe what that is, but so, it, it's real. 
in the sense that it had real effects. Yeah. I don't understand where that comes from. Where you, you take the surety that your child has been a victim rather than not. I mean, perhaps it's easier to double down on that story than it is to trust that nothing happened in the face of the allegations that something did. I mean, it's, the, it's that you can never prove a negative or... Yeah. Maybe the, the desire for closure. Like, I know that this happened. I don't know. It's very strange. Yeah. But we can certainly see the same kind of surety in parents who are committed to their own trans children. Mm. Jeanette Jennings, who's Jazz Jennings, his actual name was Jared. Mm. He's, she's the most famous mother of a son to undergo early medicalized intervention to affirm her son's belief that he's actually a girl. Yeah. She doesn't have any doubts that she did the right thing. She surely believed she was protecting him by lying to him consistently that he could be a girl. What she did is wrong, even before the puberty blockers. But what I'm trying to point out here is that in trying to keep him innocent, the innocence that, of course, puberty then goes on to erase and probably would have resulted in Jared realizing he was gay. You know, and so in this quest to keep him innocent, they actually sexualized him in the most extreme way possible. So I'm making a comparison here between, like, the kids who coerced into getting, giving these interviews about sexual acts and then had their genitals examined. Yeah. Um, that's the comparison I'm making. So there's this truly sickening moment when Marcy Bowers, who is a male surgeon who is also trans-identified and has been also surgically altered in the pursuit of a false womanhood, although as an adult... Mm-hmm. I was about to say she got us <laughs> terrible. I brainwashed. He is inspecting Jazz's so-called neo-vagina. This is like after the initial surgery, but there were several surgeries. Yeah. So he is examining him, including taking pictures. And he jokes that given the amount of attention to Jazz's private parts, she would say he could be a porn star. I saw that video. It's sick. Like, the grown-ups it's are crazy. laughing. Like, they're laughing. It's crazy. It's just like, oh, this is so wrong And that's that so person's everyday reality. Yeah. So I think it's oh. correct to identify these sorts of images, even if they come from medicalized settings, as a kind of pornography. Mm-hmm. But it's a special new sort. Because it's not directly related to debasing prostitutes. But it's based on the idea that the sexual innocence of a child can only be assured if it is intimately witnessed, probed, and in the extreme case of Jazz Jennings, altered in such a manner that it is never allowed to be anything but immature. I mean, this is a genital surgery that is taking place under the context that it was never even designed for. I mean, not like it should be designed for anyone at all, but the adult penile inversion, which is the traditional surgery that is done for on men who want to pretend to be women. At 17, you know, Jazz is going to undergo this, but his penis, because he'd been puberty blocked, is still the size of a nine-year-old. Oh, gosh. Yeah. Because the, the, that was the, horm- the hormones yeah. in, that would have, you know, matured his genitals were blocked. Mm. You know, it's that odd counterpoint between... This kind of enforced innocence, but this, you know, really over-sexualized result from that. Mm. So the perceived threats against innocence not only justify, but indeed require the use of these invasive procedures. So the colposcope or the the surgery, it's like, we have to keep these children innocent. And then 
I mean, that what that lawyer said is like, I wonder who the real pornographers are here. Right. Like, that is so right on. Exactly. Right? Yes. Because it was the state doing mandating that. Right. The only it was, and those are the pictures and taken one of the, the state by the state. And yeah. one of the things, if you read the book, that they talk about over and over in the interviews was all the photographs being generated, but they were never ever they, like. Oh. I mean, what photographs? Like, Beck's right about mm-hmm. that. It's mm-hmm. it's a, it's a it's a zinger. That one's a zinger. And so, like those reporters in the courtroom, and anyone who has watched I Am Jazz, there is an instinctual disgust at this trade-off. No matter how well-intentioned the people participating in it are. But it's not easy, in the case of the McMartin preschool trial, to articulate why it is better to not, as the title of the book goes, believe the children. And that Mm -hmm. believe the children is the same thing they say when they're talking about, quote-unquote, trans children. Yes. We believe the children. It is the same refrain. Yes. And Beck wrote this book, I think, too early for him to have known that. Mm. I think it's from 2006. Oh, interesting. I yeah. think it's too that early. Before it exploded. Mm. So it requires an entirely different kind of mentality about what role children play in society and how they mature, like for the purpose of eventually replacing the adults that bore and raise them. Mm-hmm. It seems normal now to us to assume that any adult might have a prurient interest in a child he isn't related to, but this isn't normal. Right? This isn't normal. It's, in fact, really new. And Keller remarks on this, actually, in his the, in the excerpt. And I really hope this book gets published so we can read it all. And I think he's absolutely right. This assumption of sexual interest can only take place in a world where we've realized that children aren't considered necessary to society. Which is, of course, ipso facto false, because society ends when people stop right. having children. And therefore, no one but the few people to whom they are individually precious value them at all. Mm. So I'm not arguing that some individual adults weren't creepy or nasty or downright abusive towards children. But what I think I am arguing is that a society where children are valued in that way is ultimately a better trade-off. Safety, when taken too far, becomes its own kind of abuse. Mm. Innocence is real, but it must also be risked in order for childhood to yield to adulthood. And how you manage this risk is the difference between free-roaming children and moral panic complete with invasive genital photos, or, in Jazz's case, surgeries. Mm -hmm. It doesn't matter, then, that we can usually trust strangers not to sexually abuse our children, as I said earlier. Mm -hmm. What matters is we don't. We don't. Right. Like, we just don't. Yeah. So it's not about how things actually are. It's that within ourselves, we can't can't trust. We viscerally understand... uh, risk-benefit situations, and we know that if everyone in our in our village has a shared reliance on each other mm-hmm. that we are more likely to share values that promote those things. It's for every, like your you need to mind other people's children because it somehow much more directly affects your well-being. That's right. That's right. And because we don't rely on one another in the same way, we don't trust one another in the same way. And so we can't entrust our children to other people. And also, I'm, it must have been that, you know, in networks where all the children knew each other and there was a creepy adult, all the children would just say, that's the creepy adult. Like, oh, yeah. Let's Avoid so never Or never go there alone. Right. Yeah. Like, the children would learn that mm-hmm. really quickly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm. So your, your point of this disturbing reality that the story of what's going on with the children is inevitably a story about what the adults believe. 
right? The adult's beliefs end up shaping and massaging the narrative, even in sometimes, like even in some cases, creating the narrative out of nothing. And that was something that I found horrifying about the McMartin trial parents, as well as the therapists and the police officers who interviewed the children. They assumed that sexual abuse happened. And so they asked the kids leading questions. They examined them for hours at a time and planted ideas and phrases into their minds. And what mattered most to the adults involved was not reality. And it was also not necessarily even the children's well-being. It was the reinforcement of this narrative that had captured them. And it was so compelling that they took ungodly amounts of photos of toddlers' anuses. They destroyed the lives and reputations of many innocent people. They made up, you know, they made their own lives revolve around this all-consuming story of trauma that turned out to be made up. And it was all started by this one particular mother who was later discovered to be alcoholic and schizophrenic and a pretty unreliable narrator, although that did not come out <laughs> during the trial. I think no one really knew. I don't really think knew. the parents... Had, had any knowledge that that was the source of the original allegations. I don't think so. But what's crazy is, like, even if they had known, I don't think it would have mattered. Like, it took on a life of its own, is 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 what what the moral panic was. It just, once it got kick-started, I mean, she was she was the, the fuse that started it, but then it just had its life, a life of its own. But this woman, she thought that her son had, like, a redness on his bottom. And so she became afraid that he'd been abused. And I don't know if he ever even... The only things that we know that that boy said are the mother saying, my son said, you know, such and such. And the stories got crazier and crazier over time. The things that she said, he said, you know. Um, But all it took was that one suspicion, one accusation, and then the floodgates just opened. I've heard uh, Jordan Peterson talk about this flip that happens when you no longer have an idea, but an idea has you. Mm. It's this form of ideological possession. And I think when you're possessed like this, you become capable of doing damaging things, even evil things, in the name of a good cause. Right? Like, believing the wrong story can make good and evil flip places. And that's a really terrifying thought to me. I think it's really sobering. That these people, desperately trying to protect children, ended up hurting children because they believed beyond rationality, without any meaningful evidence, in a false story that somehow became necessary to them. And it shows that good intentions aren't enough. You need to be willing to change your mind. I'm sure you've heard of Peter Bogosian. Mm, Of course. Yeah, he does this thing called street epistemology, where he has conversations with people on the street and... Um, and records them, you know, puts them on the internet. And he asks them questions to find out not just what they believe about controversial topics, but how strongly they believe, why they believe, and particularly under what conditions or in light of what evidence might they ever be willing to change their mind. You know, and that last question is really the key because it's the dividing line between like opinions and facts on one side and then I think religious beliefs on the other. Like, if you have an opinion about something or a certain interpretation of events or facts, you ought to be able to say, well, if someone could show me X, Y, Z evidence to the contrary, I'd change my mind. But if there is absolutely nothing that anyone could show you or say to you that would change your belief, then it's really, it's a matter of faith. It's religious. It's non-negotiable. It's sacred. It's not the kind of thing that one can examine and then revise because it's somehow like too central to you or it's transcendent over you in some way. You are beholden to it right? It's not the kind of thing you can change your mind about, right? And that doesn't necessarily mean it's bad or false. Like I have religious beliefs, you know, that are outside the realm of empirical evidence. I think most people probably do of some sort. But a question like, was this child sexually abused? Shouldn't be a matter of faith. It should be a matter of evidence. And a question like, is this child a boy or a girl? 
will this child be better off with or without a natural puberty, with or without their natural genitals, with or without natural fertility? That too should be an empirically testable, verifiable question and not an article of faith. It should be the kind of thing a person could change their mind about. And so that's why that believe the children is the wrong mantra for both the satanic panic of the 80s and for the question of trans kids today. No, we should definitely not believe the children all the time. And because in both cases, the children learn to parrot back the words and the narratives and the frameworks that the adults have given to them. You know, kids will learn to tell us what what we expect to hear. The grown-ups hold the keys. The grown-ups' stories set the tone. And so believing the children is really just a delayed form of confirmation bias, right? It's tautological. We put the narrative in, we get the narrative out. And those preschoolers who sat through hours of leading questions eventually learned that saying, you know, no, Mr. Ray never touched my pee-pee or took off my clothes. Like, that wasn't going to get them anywhere. Yeah, they weren't going to let these kids stop until they... No. Which is crazy. It's very crazy. I mean, they were stuck answering the same questions over and over. They couldn't go home for dinner until the grown-ups got the story they wanted. And so all the kids, one by one, figured out what they had to say to get what they wanted, which was for the ordeal to end or for the grown-ups to be happy and excited, right? Because they they get, oh, Mm -hmm. if they tell a really interesting story, the grown-ups get all... Oh, you know, say more. Let's go dredge the river for those dead babies. Exactly. You know, so and over time, the stories the kids told about the supposed abuse not only began to be full of adult language, words that kids of that age would never think of or use on their own, right? But they also became increasingly surreal and fantastical, like people floating through the air, dismemberment of animals, drinking blood, flying on airplanes out of state, underground tunnels, dozens of murders, Mm. you know, babies or grownups, like... The kinds of things that clearly show that a few of those kids were just kind of going to town with this for whatever reason. I don't know. But they were leading the grownups on by the nose. I've listened to many stories from parents of trans teenagers who say that when their child starts to talk to them about their trans identity, the child ceases to sound like himself or herself. You know, they start to sound like they're reading off of a script. They're using borrowed words, you know, and when questioned about their statements, the teens can't really go any deeper or more personally with it. They get kind of flustered and they just repeat the lines. Right. And that's what the kids are doing. They're following online influencers, grownups who've given them tips on, you know, how to talk to your parents or what to say so that your parents will give you a binder or will use your pronouns or will take you to the gender clinic. Right. They coach kids on what to say to therapists so that the therapists will sign off on getting the kid puberty blockers or getting the teen cross sex hormones. It's a loop. It's one set of grown-ups feeding the narrative to the kid, and the kid shares the narrative to another set of grown-ups to get the results they want because the trans kid or the trans teen has decided that there is only one way to relieve their very real distress. And that's like an exact parallel. Like the social workers put it in the minds of the children, yes. and the children repeated it to the court. That's right. And, and the jury was like, this is bullshit. Yes. I mean, the jury was like totally unconvinced by the, the testimony right. in particular of the children. Right. Like, just not convinced. And thank God. <laughs> right, right, but see, and they the weren't reason that was, they weren't, they weren't they, in this loop of They the weren't story. in the loop. Yeah. And, and, and I've also, I've heard uh, detransitioners describe this, this process, too, of how they went online, they found out what they had to say to get what they wanted, and then they proceeded to fool the adults or badger them or coerce them or emotionally blackmail them into affirmation therapy. I, I remember one detransitioner in her story she described like rolling her eyes at just like how totally credulous her therapist was. Mm. She's like, I just got this line, these lines right off the internet. I just said them. And my therapist was like, oh yes, right away. I'll do, you know, just 
you know, kowtowing to her. You know, and, and there are other detransitioners who are so angry that the adults allowed themselves to hand the reins over to the kids. Mm. I mean, Chloe Cole has talked about that, like with indignation, like, why did you listen to me? How could you let me drive the bus? I was 13. What the hell were you thinking? Why did you believe me? Yeah. yeah. How could how could you believe me? You know? Yeah. So. Because they wanted to believe them. I mean, because they already, yeah. It's like, what is what is that? People I know. that they can get so attached to a story, and and I have to believe that 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 ability to become so enraptured with a narrative, even if it's a terrible one, and in both cases they're they're these are really sad. Ones, they have bad you know? trade offs. Bad trade offs. Yes, I mean like, I can understand being really fervent about something that you believe you you cling to because you're convinced that it has ultimate benefits. Like, yes. I can understand, perhaps, like, clinging to the idea that most people in the world are good. Because yes. Because you need that. Yeah. Like, you, you need to be- A lot of people need to believe that in yeah. order to function. Right. But that generally, the risk-benefit to that is usually net positive. Right. But, th- but these These beliefs, ones seem... They seem net negative. negative. But there's part of me that, like, I don't want to... I don't want to demonize people who get caught... Who get caught in a... Who the idea gets them. Because I feel like that's probably something that all of us could potentially fall into. Like, well, in the sense for I the be... children, for sure. I think that yeah. it's the parents, it doesn't matter. There doesn't seem to be a vaccine. I mean, this seems to be an equal opportunity. That's, that's what I'm trying to say, right. Uh, it doesn't. There right. doesn't seem to be something a, a parent can do besides maybe not send their kid to public school or private school. Yeah. Or any school. <laughs> Homeschooling, yeah. It doesn't seem to be a lot to avoid, or maybe just never let them on the internet. Mm. It's like, you ever see Super Size Me? Oh, yeah. Right, where he talks about in the movie how he says, you know, even if you feed your kids three meals a day, the amount of commercials they watch, it's like several orders of magnitude more. Like, there's just so many more repetitions of eat bad food coming from the advertising than there is eat good food coming from your... Even from, like, the environment you live in. Yeah. It's, it's, a, it's a ratio. Mm-hmm. And that ratio exists if you give your kid a phone. Right. You're, you're, you're that's you right. know, you're, you're like, you, you you're, just, your teachings are a trickle. That's right. And they're... You just shrunk your influence down to, down to down that to, by handing them a phone. Exactly. Yes. Because it's just a tsunami of yes. whatever they're right. getting on that. Versus, this, like, the five times a day you tell them whatever. This is why my children don't have phones. <laughs> yeah. Because I want to stay... I want to have the megaphone <laughs> for my values. Yeah. Yeah. No. <laughs> Switch to being let's, there. Let's talk about early early childhood mothering. So I quoted one sort of negative review of this book on Amazon for in our homework assignment. I'm going to mm-hmm. quote another one. This book definitely promotes... The idea of mother as martyr and completely negates the idea that women are actual human beings with thoughts, feelings, and needs outside of their offspring, nor that there are fathers who play active and nurturing roles in their children's lives. She passes a lot of judgment on women who aren't able to stay home while offering very little tangible advice for people who can't or don't want to give up their careers to still foster securely attached development in their children. If people had to read this before getting pregnant, no one would have children. While I certainly found much of what she wrote validating to my own life choices, I wouldn't want my daughter to grow up to feel like having a child means sacrificing all of her own needs in perpetuity. So the title of this review is Lots of Judgment with Little Tangible Advice. 
And there's no doubt that Commissar is saying that children need their mothers in their earliest years of life. But how does that thesis statement get transformed, even by a woman who has made the choice to basically stay home, right? Mm -hmm. In line with what Commissar advocates. Mm -hmm. How does that get get transformed into exaggerations such as women aren't human beings, or having children is a perpetual sacrifice, or, or that making observations about cause and effect is a kind of passing judgment? It just seems as if, as if this reviewer is saying the book isn't good because it's going to upset people, <laughs> which is an odd measure of book. Because she is saying that, like, the quote is like, uh, you know, she passes a lot of judgment on women who aren't able to stay home while offering very little tangible advice for for people who don't want to give up their careers to still foster securely attached development in their children. Her thesis is that you can't do that. She's saying her thesis is judgment. Mm-hmm. Like, her thesis that you can't do it is she's judging people who don't do it. It's like, she's not really judging you. She's just... I mean, <laughs> is that judgment to say this doesn't work? Input A, is that you, judgment or is can, that just statement effect? You can take it personally. I guess Clearly so. Clearly she took it personally. <laughs> but, I mean, the reviewer is also flat out wrong about the book not having tangible advice for people who want to have kids but don't want to give up their career. Because, And I know this because I actually found myself getting a little bored reading, like, page after page of, like, highly detailed advice on exactly what a full-time working mother could do to bond with her baby as much as possible. I mean, the whole mom-just-came-home scenario is really scripted out in detail. Right. There's highly detailed. Right. You know, and the book has a whole section on what stay-at-home fathers can do to bond with and nurture their babies. So the book was extremely specific and practical, and it definitely spoke to people who were making, in Commissar's opinion, less than ideal choices. So all I can think is that the reviewer didn't bother to read the whole book. Possibly. So I, I don't know. Or maybe she just glossed over those parts because she felt so judged. I don't know. I'm not or sure. she felt... It was worse than others that, right? were being she judged. She felt others were being judged. That's, That's right. really the... That's interesting. That's the hook of the feminism, right? Yeah, because remember, the moment the woman has to inconvenience herself at all because she's a ba- because she has a baby, that's oppression. That's the standard. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I I think the reviewer is correct that that readers are likely to feel judged because Commissar sets a really high bar for what babies need, <laughs> you know. But the high bar on bonding with your baby is backed up by a lot of scientific evidence and research studies. This is not just her opinion. You know, so I think it's accurate to say this book might make you feel bad about your life choices, but you can't say this book is factually incorrect, you know, and, and nothing in the book made me feel as though being a mother means I don't have thoughts, feelings, or needs outside of my offspring. Like the book reminded me that being a mother is a really big deal. So it made me feel super necessary and extremely valuable. That might feel stifling to some women if you're like not replaceable, right? That could be like, oh, I feel amazing. I'm not replaceable. Or it could be like, I'm not replaceable. Get me out! You know, like, that could feel awful, or it could feel, like, amazing. It depends, right? I personally found it encouraging, because I've devoted 16 years of my life to doing the kinds of things that she recommends. And it's not because I read her book, it's because those are the things I wanted to do. Mm -hmm. So... So, of course, I have a bias towards thinking that she's correct, because I've done the things she's advised, Mm -hmm. and I've been happy. So, so obviously, I have a bias in that way. Um, But, and I think it is... Kind of, kind of reveals the subculture that I grew up in, but I find it bizarre that there are women who assume that you can just tack a baby onto your life and not be totally rearranged by it. The Christian world I was raised in had a very high regard for mothering and an awareness of how much work and joy was involved in it. 
So Commissar was presenting advice that seemed obvious to me, but she presented it like it was revelatory. You know, and, and I maybe it is revelatory for people who come from a different subculture, but reading her book opened my eyes to how parenting aware or parenting focused evangelical and Catholic cultures are. Like Christian culture takes this really seriously. Like for better and for worse, I think, because there are plenty of single Christian women or married Christian women who aren't mothers who can end up feeling judged or lesser than, you know, because highly invested mothering is kind of a high status thing in Christian circles in the way that being like a high octane career woman is a high status thing in secular circles. You know, so it's interesting to me to see the different sets of criteria by which women are judged based on their subculture, like success in one subculture would be like compromise or failure in the mm, other. Mm, interesting? That's an interesting, yeah. I don't know if the question was ever asked, will the kids be okay if mothers work? The question that was being asked by feminism was, we shouldn't have to do this just because we're women. It doesn't mm-hmm. seem like the question was asked from the perspective of children. It doesn't seem like the question mm-hmm. was asked. It feels like, in hindsight, if, like why, why is Commissar's book a revelation? Because it's saying that no matter how feminist you are, you can't make something so that isn't so. Like, just because you have an orientation towards the world and you have right to have your career and all that, it doesn't abrogate the facts on the ground that is your, children is gonna, right. your child is going to feel this particular way about you. That's right. But I don't think feminism was interested in that. I think feminism was reacting to this idea that, you know, the Betty Friedan thing. Like, we're yep. going to get into that right now, right? Yep. So this next section, from feminine mystique to career woman mistake. This is from the preface mm-hmm. of Commissar's book. The truth is we can do everything in life, but not at the same time. We cannot raise healthy children if we are not there for them emotionally and physically. We cannot be present for them while being intensely involved with work or other interests that make us less mindful of and attentive to the emotional needs of our children. And while this is a book about the well-being of our children, it is also about the happiness and well-being of their mothers. We can have all the career success we have ever dreamed of, but every mother knows that when our children suffer, we suffer too. If we have all the career success in the world, but our children resent us, or worse, are disabled by our insensitivity or lack of empathy towards their needs when they are young and become depressed, anxious, or cannot form and sustain deep emotional connections with others, are we truly satisfied as mothers? Being framed from, you know, have your career, but you can't do both. You can't have your career at the moment your child is young. Or if you and, do, the baby's And if you do, it. like, there's going to be trade-offs. Yeah. And she says, I think in interviews, she's, 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 you know, when people say, oh, but there's plenty of children who were raised, you know, in daycare and are fine. And she says, well, someone always survives a shipwreck. Oh. That's her answer. It's like, you know, mileage varies. Yes. Yeah. Just true. So, mm. she's basing this book on data. Some of it, her experience from her, her own work. Some of it, some studies. So how accurate or relevant you think this data is, that's another story. But she's not saying that women need to stay home for their children because it's their destiny right. or all they are suited for. She's not making, you know, for, Betty Friedan was correct that there was a lot of misogyny in the social attitude that women could only be fulfilled by wifedom and motherhood. Right. But it's not misogyny to suggest that children need their mothers. And I think that's the crux that we're working yes. on here, yes. right? And yet the reaction to someone like Commissar who is arguing that mothers need to choose their children because their children don't have a choice, they can't not need their mothers, mm-hmm. it seems to come from that same place of rage against misogyny. That's, that's that reviewer saying, you know, you're judging me for wanting my career. And it's like, no, we're just saying that this is this has trade-offs, significant trade-offs. Yeah. 
And some women, it seems, don't want to hear that they cannot have it all at the same time. Mm-hmm. I wonder whether people will be more persuaded by data than by tra- a traditional argument, though. I think so. And there's a new book I've out, which I think is trying to do this. We'll probably do it in a future episode mm-hmm. called The Two-Parent Privilege, mm. which, like this book, seems to be reframing what were previously moral arguments about child-rearing and to defend them now based on the data that they work better for children. So it's no longer about patriarchy, but rather about social privilege. And in the case of the two-parent privilege, it's about being married when you raise your kid. Yeah. We'll have to read that book to know whether its author, this woman whose last name is Kennedy, acknowledges any connection between arguments of tradition and the argument she's making now. Are we so blinded by the sexual revolution that we cannot even imagine the idea that social norms were valued because people did realize they created better outcomes? Mm. (laughs) I mean... I mean, isn't yes. that, like, I, I would think that would be just sort of obvious. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, the, the feminist idea is that, no, marriage and all these norms in place that are preventing women from being sexually free or free to pursue a career without, you know, any pressure to marry or have children, those are just about oppression. They're just about, that seems to be the message. Mm-hmm. Whereas, so now these books have to recoup it, you know, somehow mm-hmm. saying, oh, it's not, it's actually about... I, it's it's odd, right? Because mm-hmm. it's, now it's framing it as this different kind of oppression. Oppression of the disadvantaged children who don't have the advantage of the two-parent family. So it's... Uh-huh. All, these, all these moves we do it's, to, it's to very, make it science instead of moral because we just can't bear to have a moral conversation. Well, we, we can have, have a moral conversation. Right. We can have a moral conversation when it comes to the disadvantaged children, but we can't have a moral conversation when it comes to telling a woman her place is in the home. Okay. Anyway, <laughs> broadly, I think there is a chance that Commissar's arguments could be more successful because they make a data-driven argument if younger women hear them before they enter the workforce. Mm-hmm. My favorite part of the book is where she advises young women to think about what their values and preferences are before they have children, or at least before they give birth. She's advocating realistic expectations and warning women that there are no solutions, only trade-offs. Meeting the needs of a baby and young child will require sacrifice. Yeah. I feel it's so much better to be honest about that. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. And I I couldn't read being there without being conscious of my personal experience of the things that she was talking about. I always knew that I wanted to be home full time with my children when they were young. And for me, that has meant homeschooling them up through middle school. And I had that expectation preference since I first started having crushes on boys. Mm. Like I, I always wanted to mother the way that I was mothered by being there. And it definitely helped that I got married at 20 and that my first job after college, I um, coordinated cancer research studies. It was a stressful job and it was just not sustainable for me. I did it for four years mm. and it was an important job. I learned a lot from it, but I was counting the days until I could get pregnant and leave. I really was (laughs) like, I don't know what it would have been like if I'd found my way into a satisfying beloved career path by, by the age of 26 Mm. when my first child was born, Mm. it might've been a whole lot harder to set it aside for a decade and a half. So looking back, I'm actually grateful that I didn't find my vocation of writing until my youngest kids were five. So I didn't fall in love with a kind of work until I had already done the lion's share of the most intensive parenting that I knew I wanted to do. Mm. And so that made the path I had wanted to take, it just made it a whole lot easier. I was not conflicted about it. So the choice to be there full time, it didn't even feel like a choice to me. It felt obvious because I didn't like my job and we were committed to living very frugally so that my income wasn't necessary. 
I actually, at the time when I, when I decided to not, to, you know, not go back to work after my maternity leave ended, Mm -hmm. my husband had actually lost his job at that point. He did not have a job, but I did not go back. And so we actually floated for a little while until Mm -hmm. he found a new one. But we were both like, I was, right. like, I, was, I was like leaking milk and like up right. all night with my baby. I was like, there is no way in hell I'm going, I, right. you know, like we were symbiotically one being like, there is no way I'm going to work. It was just, an, and we, he, both he and I recognized the impossibility of that. Right. right. This is not happening, even though he didn't have a job. And so mm. thank God we had some savings, but, but it, but yeah. And it has been tight for years and years. I mean, it's not tight anymore, but in those early years, it was really tight. And so now I, I have a growing career with older kids and it's a delight and I, I don't feel inner conflict about it because the timing is really good and I was conscious that I was intentionally doing one thing at a time and I just reveled in being with my babies and I think it's the best thing I've ever done and I love that part of my life and I agree with you that Commissar's book is best read by women before they have children even before they marry I think the sooner the better and I think for Dan's style of feminism was kind of appalled that motherhood was glorified into too big of a deal. And so it responded by like sidelining and downplaying motherhood. Mm-hmm. But, but like Commissar shows, you know, mothers may think they can invest less in their babies, but the babies don't agree. Like babies needs are just the same as they've always been. Like they didn't get the feminist memo in the sixties and seventies. You know, they still want mama, lots of her, especially for the first three years, so, you know, the more mama, the merrier. I mean, that's not going to change because of Betty for Dan. <laughs> well, and it's and it it's hard because you're right. I mean, if you have to give up something, a career that you love, and you know is going to the train is going to move on. Yep. And you're not going to be able to get that same thing back. You have it to de- Yeah, it depends. Certain careers are like that. Others aren't. Yeah. Yeah. So you have to you have to take Although, okay, so that would be that would be our sort of you know, based plan would be mm-hmm. to understand that motherhood really does expect that level of sacrifice mm-hmm. because not because motherhood equals sacrifice in the sense that not because you don't, it's not valid that you love something else, right? but because of the competing needs, the child is the one that cannot be, whose needs cannot be delayed. That's right. That's right. The child is supposed to win. And Commissar gives a very convincing yeah. argument about that. Yes. Because if you invest that time, the time er, the earlier time is not replaceable. That's right. And I think, honestly, this was one of those things that if it happened at scale, would be so much more successful. It's, it's like the like inverse of the of story of the... It's like the opposite of, you know, when more women began to work outside the home. The two income thing. Mm-hmm. Like in the initial stage, when only a few number of people were doing it, it became a... It was a definite advantage because it it yes. raised your income level above, noticeably above yeah. married couples who weren't doing that. But then when everybody started doing that and housing prices just yeah. adjusted, everyone is, it just led to this. People are caught. It led to yeah. the entire society, everybody working more and paying more for the yes. same houses that they would have just, if no one had done that. Mm-hmm. It was sort of like a tragedy of the commons in a weird way. Yes. And so in, in the inverse, if if women routinely took three-year breaks or whatever in the workforce well in that manner then an entire sort of normal kind of churn would develop around that Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and it would be like re-entry re-entry jobs for women who had done maybe some like most of their professional training 
mm-hmm. their, you know, their school before they get pregnant. Yeah. But then had taken, you know, anywhere from three to ten years out of the workforce. Like, you could, you could design an entire thing around that, including, yeah. like, continuing education when you were out yeah. of the workforce. You could design that into the way that work, nor- you could normalize that. Yeah. If it was being done at scale. Right. But like, to do that, you have to really admit that men and women are really different and their bodies are really different and it would destroy all the efforts at like the, the shrinking the gender pay gap and all of that. Right. right. Like you just have to be like, yep, yeah, we're just different. You know, women are going to make less because they're taking like right, 10 years gonna, off. It's a childhood. Yeah. <laughs> it's what's happening, you know. Right. For the babies. Yeah. Right. So I think there's like an ideological like, we can't go that way because that will destroy this cherished belief. Mm, you know. Possibly. Yeah. Okay. Next section. Motherhood and childhood. Motherhood and the village. So this was one of the things that I found a little bit inside baseball to her yes. field. Right, because she's a therapist. Right. And she's a specific kind of therapist. She's yes. kind of a very Freudian yeah. type. So she Commissar repeatedly argues that not finding infant care fulfilling is, in some sense, a sign of something psychologically awry with the mother. Mm-hmm. In particular, she believes that a woman's relationship with her own mother has a lot to do with it. And she goes into a lot of detail about this, not all of which I found that convincing. Mm-hmm. In fact, I'm more convinced by her broader observations about how society has changed, specifically around the experience of motherhood. Here's a quote from her. Mm-hmm. The most common form of postpartum depression I see comes in the form of mothers who can't take being with their babies for too long. Many women who have only had to care for themselves their entire lives may feel frustrated and overwhelmed when they have to put their own needs on hold to care for a new baby 24 hours a day. They want to run away or go back to work, back to the life they had before. It's a kind of denial that their lives have changed forever. So the question begged here for me is why women have only had to care for themselves. Yeah. Mary Everstadt addresses this issue and talks about how lower fertility rates have changed the exposure that women have to children before they Mm. become mothers. In previous generations, many more women would have been involved in caring for siblings or other younger relatives. Yeah. So mothers are now less familiar with what it means to care for an infant. Mm -hmm. And on top of that, they are more isolated. This is another quote. At one time, most new mothers had many women around them before, during, and after birth. Mothers, aunts, sisters, cousins, grandmothers, and even neighbors shared stories of their own birth experiences and made nourishing meals so that new mothers could recover their strength after labor. They took care of the house and cooking so that the mother could get to know her new baby. They taught new mothers that breastfeeding takes time and explained how to do so comfortably. They alleviated their concerns and cared for their babies so that they could get some much-needed sleep. In our society, we have lost the circle of love among women, which leaves mothers isolated, confused, and alone at a time when they need care and support the most. Family often lives far away. A woman's mother or mother-in-law may come for a week or a few days or not at all. Sometimes she's not welcome. Hmm. So is it psychological or sociological? And Probably mm-hmm. it's both, yeah. right? But I think I'm more personally interested in the sociological. Yeah. I think there's so much we can do for one another as, as women that can even out those, some of those individual idiosyncrasies, yeah. w- such as whatever might have happened to the new mother with her mother when she was young. Right. I think communal support is far more likely to change outcomes than therapy is, at least yeah. from the point of view of the child being better supported by his or her mother. Mm-hmm. I'm certainly not against therapy, but I don't see better individual adjustment ultimately <clears throat> relieving the loneliness of a mother who's raising her children without adequate support. Yeah. 
I agree with you. I think the larger and the deeper problem is the loss of intergenerational local family networks of support, otherwise known as the gendered world of women, Mm -hmm. right? It's important to remember that therapy is new in the history of humanity. Like therapy showed up like five minutes ago, you know, and in my opinion, uh, I think, I think it's an immune system response to social conditions that are inhumane, you know, that are making us psychologically ill. And I'm not saying that no one had anxiety, depression, or postpartum depression until the turn of the century, but the older gendered, small scale, interconnected way of life, while it was tougher physically, I think it was much easier and more straightforward and satisfying on an emotional and psychological level than modern life. People's bodies suffered more, but I think their psyche suffered less because they were more rooted in stable systems of meaning and stable structures of communal support. So modern therapy, I think, is compensating for the lack of family connection, lack of friendships, lack of religion, and lack of meaning that a lot of people suffer from. And so while therapy is a good idea for a mother with postpartum depression, it's not enough. Like that kind of therapy, I think, is more like a tourniquet to stop the bleeding on a case-by-case basis, but it doesn't prevent each new vulnerable mother from being wounded by isolation and overwhelmed by how unsuited she feels Mm. for the role, you know. It, it was hard for me, even though I, you know, had a great relationship with my mother, it, right. ha, especially having that first baby. I felt like I was hit by a truck. It mm. was really hard. And my mother was many states away, you know, mm. and could come to visit a little bit. But like, it was hard just because it's hard. Right. You know, not because of some psychological maladjustment or right. something. Right. You know, it's just the work is hard. And, you know, I, I think our, our work focused society is very anti-maternal and anti-natalist. And if we only give struggling mothers therapy, but we don't change the social priorities and structures, then we're kind of saying, ladies, this is all in your head, you know, instead of admitting, ladies, we are failing you as a society. Mothers deserve better support than we're giving them, Mm. you know, but to touch on what you mentioned first, Commissar is saying that if a woman doesn't find her own baby interesting and engaging, then there's something going wrong inside the mother related to how she herself was mothered. I will say that did make some sense to me. And I, and I say that because I was mothered very attentively by a mother who took obvious and deep delight in me and in my brothers. And so I have felt her joy and her attention as a gift that has made my mothering feel natural mm. and spontaneous. Like I like being a mother and I like my kids in part because my mother liked me. And so there's this apprenticeship aspect to maternal attachment. It's like this gift that keeps on giving, you know, but again, the story behind the story of a mother being able to give herself joyfully to her children is that she herself must be supported Mm -hmm. by a good husband, by female family members, by community, all that love is poured into the mother by others. And that is what enables her to give her so much and so deeply Mm. for so long to meet the baby's enormous needs. Like she can't do that by herself. No woman can. You know, and I, I wouldn't be surprised if some of the book's negative reviews are coming from women who recognize that they don't have adequate support networks to be able to give what Commissar is telling them their baby needs. Or maybe they don't. They think that she's criticizing them. Uh-huh. But Commissar is good enough. Right. Mm-hmm. Maybe that's it. Mm-hmm. They don't realize that they don't know where it has to come from. Right. Right. It's not from you as an individual. Exactly. Right. It's the network. It's the it's... network's responsibility. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, it's interesting, like, Commissar comes out pretty strongly in saying that, you know, daycare is a really poor option for kids three and under, 
Um, and not because they might be abused there. <laughs> that's, not, that's not at all. <laughs> um, she calls daycare a last resort, and she encourages women to either stay home with their babies or to have another family member watch them, maybe dad, maybe grandma, or to hire a nanny, or if you can't afford that, share a nanny with other families. Anything to keep the ratio small and to keep the person constant, mm-hmm. right? You know, any of these options before choosing daycare, she says. And she says the primary issue with daycare is that the babies need to emotionally bond and attach to a primary caregiver. But the worker-to-child ratio and the high turnover of daycare workers both mitigate against that attachment happening during the daytime. And she says that quality time is a myth, that babies and toddlers need quantity time with mom, not just an hour playtime before bed and a tuck-in. So she's calling women to recognize the huge emotional needs of infants that can't be skimped on without some pretty bad consequences for the child down the road. So I can see why full-time working mothers would take offense because I think she is doing a little bit of the dreaded mommy shaming, uh, which is so painful for women. But I think what you and I would want to do with this is not shame mothers, but shame the societies and the communities that are supposed to be supporting and helping mothers so that they can be present when it matters most. And I've, I've always thought that since a mother is the environment for her baby, the only way she can be a good environment is if she herself is in a good environment, right? She can love well if she is loved well. Mm. I think it's Louise Perry who says that liberalism's myth of the autonomous individual mm-hmm. can't survive contact yep. with motherhood. But perhaps another way to describe postpartum depression is that mothers can barely survive abandonment by a liberal order that expects them to act like autonomous individuals instead of like the mothers they've become. Mm. You know, like what, to what degree is postpartum depression, like not even about the woman, but it's like she's bearing the cost of the broader social order having left her on her own, you know, like that it's not in that sense, it's not really about her and or necessarily about like how she was mothered or something, but like she's, she's the drain that all of the, the social orders, like anti-maternal, we don't give a shit. We're all individuals out here. All that sentiment drains down into the mother abandoned, you know, with well, her baby and exhausted. And I, I, I just well to think of the site of the home as not work. Like we have this whole structure. That's ridiculous, right? We, have, but also, but I mean, in the specific sense of we have a place where people go and work together. We have a place where the network exists. We have a place mm-hmm. where teamwork mm-hmm. is expected. Mm-hmm. That's called the office, right? But and why is that? So not that's the home? crazy. Yeah. So you think so the so being home with your baby becomes this sort of anti teamwork space, which is so stupid. Which is not how it needs to be. No, it's terrible. So it's terrible. For so you're mothers. gonna feel like a failure because all the things that make you successful at work don't exist. Right. That, right. Yeah. Where's the team building exercise? Exactly. For the where's, mother, right? where's my scrum in the morning? Who's <laughs> got the right. bottles? Who's got the that's dishwasher? Right. Who's got the That's right. Didn't you say at one point you're like, oh the amazing things I could do if I had staff, right? Like a yeah. mom, mama needs staff. Otherwise known as everyone needs a wife. <laughs> that's right, that's right. Right, moms need help. So and like I I love that quote from Commissar when she says, In our society we have lost this circle of love among women, which leaves mothers isolated, confused, and alone at a time when they need care and support the most. Yeah, and, and that's the circle and, of love. And that has nothing to do with how with whether you're rich or poor in between. No. It, no. I mean That's right. Yeah. Yeah, it's not about the finances. It's like it's being alone in the suburbs, whether you have all the nice things or you know, you don't. It's that is that doesn't make that doesn't make a dang bit of difference. That's right. That's right. Yeah, and we've lost this circle of love because it's in the nature of the modern economy to turn relationships of care into jobs or into paid services. Mm. But I just wanted to, I wanted to 
put it on a more positive note, put a quick religious aside here. Um, so, of course, the Catholic Church highly honors the Blessed Virgin Mary as sort of the mother par excellence. But what they also do, and this was new to me as a convert, they have this tradition that honors Mary's parents, Joachim and Anna, hmm. as holy and devoted. They even have their own feast day, July 26th. Mm. And there's this beautiful painting by Leonardo da Vinci called The Virgin and Child with St. Anne. Hmm. It's so beautiful. And where Mary is like trying to grab naked toddler Jesus who's wrestling with a lamb and is kind of looking mischievous. And Mary has this really tired smile with what looks to me like bags under her eyes. <laughs> but what's so beautiful is that Mary is sitting on her mother's lap. She's like supported by St. Anne, who has this very amused grandmotherly look on her face. And she's kind of looking both at Mary and at Jesus. And she's got her hand on her hip. And it's this sort of consummate image of the need for the mother to be mothered. Mm, that's beautiful. And so if even, you know, the perfect mother, which is what Mary symbolizes, who gave birth to the perfect baby, <laughs> needs support, <laughs> then every mom does. Right, so three cheers for grandparents and extended family. That's so. a very nice image. You know, yeah. I have to say, a complete opposite popped into my mind at some point <laughs> really? reading this book. I was thinking oh. about we should read, we have to do eventually a fiction episode. We do. We and do. I want to read The Handmaid's Tale. I've read oh, it before, but it was a zillion years ago. We should. And I was just thinking to myself, you know, one of the things that happens in this sort of dystopian theocracy mm. is they send the women home, which is, of course, in general... A very misogynistic, yes. dystopian idea. Yeah. The idea that women yeah. are not allowed to work. It's very mm -hmm. Taliban. Yeah. I mean, it is oh, the it Taliban. Is. Mm -hmm. But it's funny because, you know, context is everything, mm. right? Because if you had a baby and somebody sent you home for three years, that's what that's what Commissar wants. Right? Like, if it was just normalized <laughs> that women spent the early years with their children. Yeah. With their children and with one another. And with one another. Yes. But that's the thing. That's what I think at scale. Yes. You gotta like do you it think, together. Like, you could write this... I, I swear I should have just gone into writing, like, bad TV movies about <laughs> random ideas I had. Because, you know, mothers stay home. There's a, there's a middle ground, I think, between the Taliban and, you know, claiming that it is completely anti-feminist to... To, for a woman to stay home with her kids. Like, there's got to yeah. be a middle ground there. Yes, I'm sure there is. Yeah. Right? Yeah. But you realize, like, those are the... Those are the tripwires. Yeah. People think, oh, women aren't allowed to work. Taliban. Right. Like, that's literally what people think. The feminists, the career women and the stay-at-home moms need to have a big conference and talk about, like, this meeting in the middle where how there could just be this attitude that if you're staying at home when your kids are young, it doesn't make you a stay-at-home mom in the sense that feminists love to... Right. You know what I mean? Kind of pigeonhole. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. Like, I feel like even the vocabulary is very... That's right. Because stay-at-home mom doesn't even mean... Doesn't even have the same valence, yeah. depending on which perspective you're looking at it from. Yeah. That's like right. you were saying, like, in... You know, it can be very highly valued to be a... Yeah, I mean, the phrase stay-at-home mom within right. like, Christian circles, is conservative like, Christian circles, is like, It's like well, being CEO. Yeah. Yeah, 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 for sure, for sure, and, and yeah... Yeah, it, it very much is. It is more of a higher status. Right, and if a woman would be kind of looked down on a little bit more in Christian circles for, oh, you're going to work right. for how many hours? Right, like, oh, full, right, right. Like, Part-time work is okay, but full-time. Right. Know, there's a, it, it's, it's completely inverted in this in sort of the status. That's so which, weird. Which, is, which gives its own set of problems. Right. right? Well, you know? it's like we were talking about before. It's like this, uh, it's it's not about what it is. It's, it's about what it signifies. Mm -hmm. Right? Mm -hmm. And we're trying to get 
commissar is trying to get people to say, no matter what it signifies to you, here is the trade-off. Right. So you know, so you have the facts. Make your decision, but make it aware of the impact on the child of what you do. And especially for young women who maybe have received messages that it is not feminist, that it shows a lack of solidarity with other women, hmm. not to make that choice to stay home. So like, just drop that. Just That's screen right. that right out. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, in a way, I think that would, that would be the best way to honor what feminists fought for, which was the ability to choose. Right. Yeah. To have options. Yeah. All right. Before we end, I just wanted to have a little epilogue here. We got some good feedback from a, a regular faithful listener of the podcast. And so I just want to respond to that feedback briefly. We here at Red Femmes, we talk a lot about the meaning of gender. And so that means we often end up touching on transgenderism, which is a very complex issue that's surrounded on all sides with pain and difficulty. And we wanted to clarify that we bear no ill will towards people who are having the kind of experience that prompts them to describe themselves as transgender. You know, it's, I think it's possible to disagree with the way someone frames their experience, to disagree with the language they choose for themselves, with the changes they might want to make to the law, or with things that they do to their bodies, while still desiring that person's well-being and holding a stance of charity towards them and sympathy for the distress that they're going through and for the way that their illness manifests itself in self-harm. And I think we're trying to thread the needle here, you know, to criticize certain ideas and beliefs as false and to criticize certain actions as wrong and harmful at the same time as we recognize that these beliefs and actions are intertwined in the lives of real men and women who are suffering and confused and who will hopefully find their way through this experience into a place of accepting their bodies and being integrated with their families and their communities. So all that to say is we wish them well. We absolutely do. We do. And I feel like I want to borrow something from the mass that we always say. We have a time where we pass the peace, you know, mm. and we say, peace be with you, you know, and the other person responds, and also with you. I don't know if we'll get an and also with you peace back, but but our, our stance is peace be with you. And um, to any and all people who call themselves trans, we hope you find peace and healing and wholeness in body and mind. That's definitely my desire. We absolutely do. Yeah. Thank you. So... All right, yeah. so next time, to be determined. To be determined. Maybe some fiction. Maybe some two-parent privilege. Who knows? Yeah. <laughs> we'll figure it out. Maybe a retro. Maybe we throw oh, it back. Do the second sex. Oh, yeah. I got, that for, I got that from the library. Oh, and We didn't get to it, and then someone else needed it, so I had to return it. Um, <laughs> so I got to get on the list again. <laughs> all right, well. But, all right. We can do that. Till next time. Till Thanks next for time. joining us, everybody. Bye. Bye.